You're listening to season three, episode twenty-six. Hello and welcome back to Let's Talk Shop. My name is Therese and I'm your host. If you are new to the podcast, then welcome. I'm so happy that you are here. I run a business called Small Business Collaborative, where I help small business owners grow and scale their wholesale and essentially grow their businesses through sales. If you're tuning in on the Monday when this episode goes live, today is the last day to get your spot on Let's Talk Sales by course that I'm running in September to help you get on top of your sales and grow your sales this year. You can find all the details on my website and you can book straight on there as well. Doors close this evening, Monday the 3rd of August at 9pm. The course is for you if you want to feel more confident about selling this year, if you are uncertain how to sell this year due to COVID and of course it's for you if you want to grow your sales this year. As you probably already know if you're listening to this podcast, September is a really key month for buying for independent retailers for autumn and without trade shows this year. Retailers still need stock, as you've heard from several guests on this podcast. They do want to hear from you guys. So if you're feeling unsure about how to do that, sign up to the course and let's do it together in September. This episode is a quite lengthy episode, so I'm actually going to head straight into it. Of course, I always love it when you share where you're tuning in. You can tag me. I'm small underscore business underscore collaborative over on Instagram. But we're going to head straight into the episode. Today, I'm speaking to Jeremy from Blue Eyed Sun. Blue Eyed Sun is a greeting cards publisher based in Brighton, and they also now distribute bamboo mugs and reusable water bottles so they have branched out a little bit and um, you will hear all about that in my chat with Jeremy from Blue Eyes Sun here on the podcast. Hello Jeremy, thank you so much for coming on Let's Talk Shop. Good morning, it's lovely to be here, thanks for inviting me. Thank you for coming. I would love for you to tell us a little bit more about yourself and Blue Eyed Sun and how it all started. Blue Eyed Sun's been going 20 years uh, this year. Uh, wow. It started, yeah, amazingly. I uh, can't quite believe it myself. Um <laughs> So it was uh, started by um, my girlfriend at the time, uh, Joanne, and um, uh, I joined as a business partner about a year later. She was unemployable in her own words, and we sat down and made a big list of all the things that she could do because she's a very talented woman, and um, uh, she'd done wedding dress designing and interior design, and um, at one point she'd had a small shop up in York. And it was a bit of a disaster, the shop. that They took it on because it was £30 a week in rent. And it was on the outskirts of York. It was £30 a, rent, a week for rent for a reason. Um, <laughs> and uh, so it wasn't anywhere. There was no footfall. <laughs> and it was pre-early days for the internet. So um, they couldn't even drive footfall with Instagram like you can now. But um, And it was really, it was almost like a tiny, the size of a, some pubs, toilets, uh, you know, it's really small. Uh, and yeah. on the back of the door in this uh, little shop that sold secondhand clothing and all sorts of bits and pieces, she had a card rack and she'd started making uh, these greeting cards using an old enameling kiln that she'd had uh, when she was a girl with her dad. They used to take up this kiln on Saturdays and 
or, or on rainy days and um, and fire bits of copper with glass powder on them and the enamel would sort of melt down on the powder and make these beautiful pieces of glass on copper. And so mm. she did a bunch of designs, put them on the back of the door, and they, they were the best-selling thing in the shop. So when we came to doing this list, she'd moved to Brighton a, a year or so later, and um, when we came to doing this list together, she put greeting cards on the list. And we systematically went down through the list and worked out, you know, if you want to earn... 20 or 30,000 a year, uh, you know, how many wedding dresses would you have to make? How many houses would you have to decorate? Or, you know, how many paintings would you have to do? She was a fine artist as well. And uh, the cards came up as the sort of most accessible, easy thing to get going with. And, and so she put a range together and we created an order form with a special offer on it. I remember because this is really super early days, we, we cut it all out. We did it all by photocopying, basically, and uh, and then and then sort of created this form. And she took it to stores, and most of the stores were like, "Oh, we, sorry, we're not taking on any more card designers." And she said, "Well, can you just give me some feedback?" And and they'd look at them, and five minutes later, they'd ask her if she had an order form. And and so it was a, it was a real hit. The, I remember her first shop was um, Malarkey's on Bond Street, and uh, I was living in London at the time, and and. Um, she got they they went for the full package we created a series of packages they could buy um and the top package i think from memory was 350 pounds it had the biggest discount on it and um yeah. he'd, he'd placed the order and given her a check and <laughs> she was so excited she jumped straight on a bus up to london and, and we, we celebrated and um and that that was the start and and we found that you know that every store she was able to get to um sort of nine times out of ten they, they would order so we sort of we knew we had something but it was it was really difficult to scale from that stage. I suppose when you because you what was your background then? Oh, I was I wanted to be a filmmaker, so I was busy making films. Uh, I was working for a video production company in London, and uh, yeah, I, my I I, I did uh, a degree in, in European arts and um, and a degree in film, master's degree in film studies, and so yeah, I was busy making short films and videos, and then I moved down to Brighton. Uh, to join her and uh, because it was easier for me to get film grants in Brighton than it was in London. There was just much more competition in London. And I, around the time that she was starting, I was getting film grants in Brighton and making short films. Oh, that's exciting. And then you joined her at one stage. So uh, she was going for about a year and um, she did – so the, the business was always profitable, but it wasn't making much profit So at the start. So the first year, I think she did about 10000 in sales and she made a small £500 profit. And she was she was just sort of plowing back any money she made straight into buying materials and you know keeping everything going. Yeah. Um, and after a year, we realized that she definitely had something – uh, because the response was really good and the shops were reordering. And we, we had we had customers then, we still have today. Malarkey's uh, changed hands, but uh, one of our first customers, I remember we did the first trade show uh, in May 2000. It was what was then called Top Drawers. It got rebranded as, as Pulse, but that, that show is no more anymore. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, that whole experience was a baptism of fire. We had no idea about how many, we wanted to hand out flyers and, so, because we couldn't really afford to print brochures, mm. we had no idea how many we, we needed. We had no idea how many orders we would get. But I remember some of our earliest customers are still with us now. So, Vinegar Hill is a small chain of shops in the Midlands. Yeah, you know them. Beth yeah. has been on the podcast actually. Yeah, Beth. So Beth was like, I remember her in May two thousand coming on our stand, and I'd never seen anyone buy like that so she came on and she knew exactly what she wanted she'd made she'd looked at the cards looked through them carefully decided she liked them and she was just in and out very quickly and um 
so we had we had experiences like that which is which are really fantastic because they were showing us that we're going she was going in the right direction so i in answer your question i joined the following year we had done that may show and then i think we'd booked in 2001 to go to another small show perhaps it was also top drawer again um oh i think it was the very first top drawer spring actually and they just started it that year and at that show it was okay both the shows were fine for us but they weren't we thought we would take like 20 or thirty thousand pounds of the orders that we took i don't know less than five and yeah uh, and so but we didn't realize actually the real value which uh you know it shows is is opening accounts and uh, yeah. finding sales agents and and sometimes distributors as well that's that's actually it doesn't really matter what you take in orders at the shows if you're doing those other things that's what really counts and so we just we met someone i remember the show now it was british craft tra- craft trade fair the british craft trade fair in harrogate and it was around march april time uh, in 2001 and we met a girl there and she said oh i, I took six thousand pounds worth at um at harrogate home and gift and we were like okay great let's go do that but at this mm-hmm. stage the business still hadn't i wasn't really pro- i was helping packing boxes and stuff but i wasn't a partner in the business and mm-hmm. um we decided to book the show and we also decided to go to it specifically to find sales agents because we thought if we can't scale this let's just stop doing it and become web designers or something because <laughs> the internet was just blowing up at that time. And um, so we went to Harrogate Home and Gift. Uh, we, we rejigged also the product so that we could factor in a 175 to 20% commission for sales agents Yeah. and then went to Harrogate. And we were approached by 15 agents. Wow, did you six. advertise for them? No, like- we just had a tiny little two by two stand. Uh, it was, it was, they used to call it the dungeons up there because yes. it was in the underground <laughs> car park, uh, in the Harrogate International Center. There yeah. was the halls ENF from memory. And, um, in fact, actually we, we were in the larger of the two halls. It wasn't the greeting card specific hall that evolved. Um, I think it was in F eventually that one. Um, and that we actually were down there and did a lot of business in those, in those dungeons for years until we eventually moved out into DP one. But, um, but yeah, that, that was an incredible experience. I remember we, we had a holiday booked shortly after the show. My, my, my father had died the year before and so my mother was on her own and we decided to go away with her together to Cornwall that following year. And yeah. um, I remember we went to the show, we took on these six agents and we had the holiday booked almost straight after. And we were down in Cornwall just thinking, oh God, how are we going to handle like what we've just done? And we came back from the holiday and there were just the facts. We used faxes back then yes. <laughs> pretty well. The fax machine was just pumping these orders out every day because, of course, we knew that when we went into stores ourselves that, you know, nine out of ten times people would order. And, of course, when you take on a sales agent, they've already got those relationships. So you're, you're not yeah. even going in cold. Those those agents have relationships with up to 200 stores in their territory. Um, and so – and they're going out every day. Uh, at that time, people were going to two or three stores, sometimes more per day. Yeah, they we could had, get appointments right, and people were buying. Right. And so we, they, they had something that we knew sold and um, and they just had access to bigger chunks of the market. And there were physically more people. So, you know, hmm. we could leverage all of that. Um, in fact, I remember we had this one agent, Irene Lee in London, and uh, she had a chauffeur, someone who drove her around. She had a chauffeur. Uh, and he wow. would drive her up to the store, um, drop off the, the, the bags for her full of samples, 
uh, and then just drive around the block, wait for her. And she'd call him on the mobile when she came out and she could move on to another. And she, she was able to make calls in the car. Um, so she was, she is an ex Harrods buyer and she really had it going on. And that time cards were really starting to boom, you know, in, in the gift and, um, retail industry, particularly handmade cards. And because we had something that was really special and different from, you know, everything else, um, yeah. you know, we were able to capitalize on that. So, so I joined, I was on that trip down to Cornwall, actually, we, we um, had started getting busier that year. And, and we agreed that I would join as a partner in the business. And things just went from strength to strength. From there, we, we went from 10 to 35,000 the next year, and up to 70 the following year and 150 from there and it just it just went up and up so wow um, yeah it was quite a roller coaster ride i have to say <laughs> um so yeah and it, it and you know we were learning fast on the go because we were having to you know we had to start hiring people to help us i think we had our first employee in either late 2001 or early 2002 and um she was just a friend uh and we were working uh, from home as well with that so you know that that was all a very st- steep learning curve <laughs> yeah um, and uh, then we took our first premises on 2003 it was uh, I think spring summer 2003 we we put a deposit down and rented a thousand foot square a thousand square foot space in a in a kind of series of workshops over uh, just under any of the archways in, in Brighton as you drive into Brighton there's a there's a railway bridge there and we were underneath there and and so um and that was great because having that space meant we could um you know we could start to scale and so we we had we bought a couple more kilns and then i think around 2000 around that time actually around 2003 2004 we had a big american customer approach us on at our stand in spring fair we used to be in an area called focal point which was like a design-led section like a top drawer within spring fair yeah. Um, and it was great because they leveraged, you paid more for the space, but they leveraged marketing and, and lot of buyers used to go there because they, you know, to find new. So like a summer house sort of thing. Yeah, like a small summer house, exactly. And, and yeah. so but companies that came out of there, for example, were companies like Hodgepodge, which eventually sold, I think, to Carte Blanche and, uh, Little Dog Laughed. I don't know if you know them, but they started in Focal Point as well. Um, mm. Rachel Ellen was in Focal Point. Okay. There were a few. You know, they were all small back then, and uh, it was it was organised by a woman and her husband, and then her husband passed away, and she kept it going for a number of years, and then and then decided to retire. Um, but we we did a lot of business there, and I remember we had this huge order uh, from this buyer. She came along. I was on the stand all day, and I kind of dealt more with the sales and marketing, and Joe dealt more with production and um, design. Yeah. And this buyer came from this big American store, Papyrus, in the states. Oh yeah. And, um, and she, I'd gone off and had a sandwich, and I came back. And at that time, we were in negotiations to start distributing in America with a big American distributor. Yeah. And um, so Joe had met this woman, and she said, "Well, like, I don't know if I can take an order because you know we're talking to this distributor." And um, and at that time, I think they had 120 stores. <laughs> and I came back, and she said, "Oh, this person came by, and she left a card." And I, I said, "I didn't think we could do it," and <laughs> I was smiling. <laughs> But inside thinking, oh, no, what have we done? <laughs> and, uh, and she um, she did say she'd come back, and fortunately she did. And, and actually it was funny with that whole business with the distributor because those cards were very labor-intensive and quite tricky to make because they yeah. involved sitting in front of a, an amylene kiln that was 900 degrees Celsius, and you could only cook 20 of them at a time. Uh, and so 
if we'd gone with the distributor at that stage, we would have probably tripled our volumes, but we would have had half, yeah, typically your margins are 50%. So, oh, sorry, your discount is 50%. So your margins are very slim. And yeah. that would have just meant that we were super busy, you know, super busy, but actually not, not Making really money. benefiting from it. Yeah. So, um, but actually with this retailer, she was happy to buy at trade price. So we had all that margin in there, uh, which would enable us to grow and, and do everything that we wanted to do with the business. And so we ended up turning down the offer of the distribution and going with this one customer. And they're still a customer to this day. Um, they don't buy, we don't do enamel cards anymore, but yeah. the price of copper just went through the roof. It was five times uh, the price of what we started at. So yeah. So, um, you know, that, that sort of combination of things was all a big part of the growth and sort of negotiating how we grew over those years was a tricky business. You know, we had to, we had to choose our opportunities wisely. I remember we were at one point, we were offered an opportunity to go into Woolworths and, you know, that at the time they had 900 stores and we were focused. Our caption was uh, gorgeous handmade cards for design led shops. Um, and that's where we were focused. We, were, we we didn't want to sell to everyone. We just wanted to sell to people who had beautiful stores. It didn't matter yeah. if they were gift stores or card stores. Um, and we was we had people in the early days like Paper Chase and Harrods and all those guys approached us. I mean, now it's a lot tougher to get into those stores. Yeah, um, you know you you have to you have to be in trading for a bit. And and similar with. John Lewis. I mean, I think at the time someone said to us, so you need to be exhibiting for two or three years before John Lewis will buy from you because they want to see that you're a serious business and you're established and all the rest of it. Um, yeah. But uh, but trade shows have always been a big part of our mix. Like We've done over 100 of them now. I think wow. on average we've done four or five a year since over 20 years. So, And in fact, last year, I think I did 10. <laughs> so. Do you think that they changed a lot? Like, Do you feel that you take – do you see a difference with – from when you started okay of course when you started it was a little bit different but you know when you were sort of in those early days where you were still a little bit established do you see a difference to now when you go yeah i mean there was a time at harrogate for example i guess this would have been in the early to mid 2000s where companies like i remember there was one year where tracy russell i don't know if you're familiar with her company um she does handmade cards and mm. she did fifty thousand at one show uh in orders and mm. you know there are companies as you know you work for mpw that that will do big numbers they tend to be gift companies these days um yeah. and it's not to say that card companies won't do that type of volume but it doesn't tend to be done all at the sh at the show so the shows are a lot about I mean, they do a lot of things, you know, they, they're obviously there to attract custom, but they're also there to show your customers your latest work. They're there to uh, nurture, develop, acquire agents. Um, they're there to find relationships with distributors. We, we, we didn't distribute for a long time and we dabbled with it, but we didn't properly focus until the, um, until the t 2012, I think it was, but I'll, I'll talk about distribution in a bit. So, yeah, I think, and also feedback. So, it's super important. The shows are very much part of us being able to test ideas. And so we've got stuff that we always have a range that we're launching at a show, um, mm -hmm. but we also have stuff that we're playing with. And so now when I go to shows, I've got good relationships with 
people who become customers who become friends basically um yeah. and so i will grab that some of their time while we're at the show they're a captive audience for us i'm not interrupting something they're doing at work because they have a lot of time to be there some of them are busy buying of course um and and some of them are there like at springfield some of them they're all week to buy because um yeah. even if they've got a small shop they they want to have a great diverse um collection of products to to show their customer. Um, but, you know, it's an opportunity for me to ask questions about what they think about new ranges, uh, new ideas, to ask them about what the market's doing and how things are for them. And we don't have shows on at the moment because of COVID-19, but, the um, you know, I'm still doing that. So I call customers and check in with them, see how they're doing. Um, and it's a good way of me kind of getting a feel for what's really going on out there, um, you know. Uh, I think that's so important mm. and I, it's nice that you keep doing that even though you now probably have team members as well that is managing sales right well I tend to I have a, I have 10 sales agents I think maybe mm. 11 uh, so I manage them myself okay. I haven't delegated that oh that's um, nice so you kept yeah. that yeah I mean sales is really what's driving your whole business I mean of course the designers as well but you know what's what's driving your your income is, is sales well, so yes. it's a super important part of the business to pay attention to i often say you know without sales we don't have a business right we have a hobby a very yeah. expensive hobby yeah i mean there's two parts of it as well one is getting the order into the store and then the other is getting the real it's actually three is next is getting paid yeah. so you can do a load of orders with the store but if you don't have the cash in the bank it doesn't really count um yeah. so your finance department's super, super important for that as well because um and actually many good maintaining good credit control is really really important as well because especially um, you during know, the, this the customers yeah i mean if the if the customers aren't paying their bills on time or they're not paying their bills then they're not really a customer so you know no matter how much you've sold to them uh, yeah. so yeah it's super important to to have that also yeah so I, I i keep an eye on our distributors and our and our agents and and again that all feeds back into the system in terms of giving me a feel for you know for the marketplace because you know some years you might not do as well as you did the previous year and and it's important to know whether that's you or it's the climate or you know something else and uh and to so that gives you a as a fairly realistic picture you know and also now you don't do so much more than greeting cards so yeah so um two or three years ago we diversified uh we had an opportunity come our way um i, I turned it down originally actually funnily enough we so we sell uh, our greeting cards in germany through a company called sheet meek who are in effect our German distributors and we have a great relationship with them we've been selling to them for about five years I think and then Ali who runs that company developed this range uh, called bamboo cups uh, and he was he was one of the first in the marketplace to well, to basically kind of create that marketplace up of other companies like eCoffee and their reusable coffee cups made uh, primarily from bamboo fiber and mm -hmm. uh, they're really beautiful and he's he's done a he's a so Ali's wife has a shop in Germany. So he's familiar with retail. And of course, he sells to a lot of shops. And actually, he'd, we were with him pretty much from the time he started the business. And he's done a fantastic job with growing that business. And so he developed these bamboo cups. And he asked me if, if I would distribute them in the UK. And yeah. at first, I was, I was like, because I, so I've been, I've been talking at a thing called the Ladder Club for the past 15 odd years. Uh, which supports new greeting card publishers in the industry. And oh. um, it's an annual event held. Uh, it was originally started by a, a woman called Lynn Tate, who ha was a retailer and a publisher. Um, yeah. Sad to 
no more. Uh, she passed away. But um, but Jackie Brown, who she started it with, who runs Progressive Greetings magazine, yeah. she um, she's keeping it going. And uh, so I'd always said to publishers, because a lot of publishers come into the industry and they start doing cards, which have great margin and they're very easy to manage and they don't take up a lot of space. Mm-hmm. And then they're kind of like, oh, we can put these designs on this and that and the other. And then they, they tie up all their cash in the giftware products yeah. Uh, and of course, gifts is kind of a different business, and then they come unstuck from you know cash flow issues. I, I remember business people always saying that um, loss of profits is like a cancer in your business, but um, loss of cash is like a heart attack. And so I've always always kept a strong eye on um, making sure we had sufficient cash uh, supplies in the business. So so I'd I'd always advise these people not to go into gifts. <laughs> and then I was with this offer of going into gifts, so I was very hesitant to start with, and actually I turned the offer down, and then. Um, Ali was quite persistent. Came back a few months later, and, and they were they were also selling very well at that time. So it was it was part of a sort of boom that happened with reusable coffee cups. And yeah, I decided he he showed me all the orders that he took at, at Spring Fair that year. We had a meeting, and he's and I looked through them all, and I already sold to at least half the customers. And that was the other thing. I was like, does this actually fit with who we sell to? Yeah. And because it's all very well starting up a new market, but then your attention gets split. And I'd already learned kind of that lesson because we started a separate business called IB Ellen back in 2009 doing wedding stationery. And at the time, I was like, well, the wedding market seemed really fragmented. And I thought, well, there's opportunity here to create a mid- mid-market player that's you know maybe doing half a million in sales per year and to provide consistently good high standard of service. Um mm-hmm. And then having been in the industry for a number of years, I realized actually the reason it was so fragmented is because so many people want different things, you know, yeah. brides want a unique <laughs> wedding. And you, yeah, so, and also what I learned from that doing that business, which ultimately failed was, um, was, you know, you split your attention and focus and that's really can, can be damaging if you're not careful. So, so, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't all bad, by the way, because actually during the time, we started in 2009. It was pretty successful to start with, but it didn't get to where we wanted it to get to. And Blue-Eyed Sun during that time also had a tricky moment around 2011, but 2013, it just it had another big surge in sales. So, so yeah, I was really kind of hesitant to split my focus. And so I said no initially. And then when I saw these orders, I thought, okay, well, maybe we can do something. And we took it on and it was phenomenal the business i mean we sold a ton of these cups and you know our retailers made that we worked with uh, made a lot of money off them and and still are and we've now diversified with that with that from the cups into to water bottles for these flasks uh, i've got this brand called bioloco uh, which has also been created by ali and it's their double ward flasks that keep liquids hot for 12 hours or cold for 12 hours and so they're and they're really beautiful looking they look different to other products on the marketplace and they're also doing well so we're kind of now our business is basically 50 50 cards and gifts but it enabled us to have double digit growth over the last two or three years which is you know uh, given the given the timings and everything was just fantastic for us yeah it's a, that's great with everything going on in the industry yeah and do you how's it been now doing covid what happened because you you basically sell to the trade right you don't yeah we we have a we do have a b2c website uh called greenmagpie.net um mm-hmm. so anyone who wants to just buy one of our cups can go and do that or bottles like all of, all of our giftware products are on that site we we haven't put greeting cards up because i didn't want to get into uh, selling three pound cards you know so our cards typically retail for between three and four pounds and i don't 
I didn't want to have a site where someone comes on just to order one card. And, you know, I think really if you're going to do online retail, you need to have your basket be 15 to 30 pounds per customer minimum uh, in order for it to work. And so, but we set it up because we were like, for example, sometimes people lose the lids of their cups and things like that, or they want a new sleeve for the outside of it. And we sell all those consumables on the, on that site. And it just, it enables our retailers and us to have a single place to point to because retailers don't necessarily want to hold spare lids. That's very good because I have a number of cups from all sorts of brands without <laughs> one of without those the lids. <laughs> it's, it's useful to have that. So, um, and also, you know, it's so much easier to like, I've done several websites over the years uh, on different bits of software because we, we had the wedding business and we had different websites for Blue-Eyed Sun. And um, now there's this fantastic software called Shopify, which is, you know, we, we set our Green Magpie store up in two weeks and we did it mostly ourselves. Uh, it was that easy to do. And mm. um, and it looks, if you go to it, you'll see it, it looks fantastic. And, uh, you know, modern, it's actually better than our Blue-Eyed Sun site in some respects. Our Blue-Eyed Sun site runs on something called Magento. And um, so, yeah, that's that has been a good lesson. But in, in terms of, yeah, we're primarily B2B. So, mm. and in terms of how we market to people, we, as I said, we do five trade shows a year. We also, we're doing four printed brochures a year. Um, so we do a big everyday one at the start of the year, which is all our, and well, actually, no, it's more because, of course, we have the Gifo brochures. Um, mm. So we'll do always do new brochures at the start because January tends to be such a fantastic time. January, February is such a fantastic time for selling and yeah. for buyers to be buying. And then we do a spring brochure, which has all our Valentine's, Mother's Day and Father's Day and Easter. Um, that comes out sort of mid-year. Uh, and we do a Christmas brochure, which is out in the spring. And then we we'll often do a like a small top up range sort of halfway through the year and so that'll have a smaller kind of insert style brochure so and then we've got the sales agents and we've got distributors and our b2b website at blueeyedsun.co.uk is is super important for driving not only sales leads but also sales so we do like 10 percent of our sales just through that site alone and then we might do another you know x percent through our agents and then okay. some through our distributors and these days also we're in some multiples uh through brokers so we work with other big car publishers like uh, hallmark and uk greetings and woodmanstone to go into stores like john lewis waitrose etc yeah. and um uh so yeah with covid's of course the trade shows are immediately gone yeah. so you don't have access you don't have access to not only you still have access to your customers but what you don't have access to is someone who might see your marketing um, oh, of course, we also have the magazines as well. I forgot to mention them, which we do a lot of PR and we spend money on advertising with, with several of them. With so the trade press? Or? The trade press. Yeah, we don't yeah. do consumer press. Yeah. Well, I say we don't do. We do send off press releases and stuff, but we, we never did that because there was no cause for us to drive consumers because we weren't selling the cards online. Yeah. Of course, in the last yeah. two years with Green Magpie, that's changed now. And so that's mm. really exciting because, you know, if we, if we do get anything picked up and when I do, you know, podcasts like this or I got interviewed by uh, Reuters this week. And so, you know, I can I can name drop <laughs> the website yeah. and get some traffic. Um, whereas before you mentioned Blue Eyed Sun and, you know, you're relying on there being a retailer out there that's going to buy from you. So, yeah, not being at the shows means we don't get that random person that comes by and happens to be the buyer from you know a chain of stores that you're not familiar with in europe yep. or um, chain of stores even in the uk that you don't have access to so like um just pre-covid we were approached by ryman's who have 300 stores and they wanted to try one of our bottles in their shops and that's a you know that came 
actually that came out of two or three trade shows, meeting them at yeah. trade shows and emailing, etc. So yeah, but we have built because we've done so many um, of the shows, we build up a really great list. So we have their contacts. So we call and email. And also, I write a blog as well on Blue Eyed Sun. The blog's sort of targeted for retailers, um, mm-hmm. and it's you know it's about like how to sell online as a retailer. You know how to use social media to sell as a retailer. I've, I've written blog posts like the seven. Uh, seven seven habits of highly effective retailers which is a, a nod to um stephen covey's book seven habits of highly effective people mm-hmm. um I, i'm really into the whole personal development thing and and so often i'll read stuff and then that'll influence um, what i'm writing and, and actually then about four or five years ago i got approached by greetings today to write a column for them and then after a year or two of doing that progressive greetings um uh invited me to write for them so i write for the magazine every month as well, a trade magazine called Progressive Greetings, and that's a greeting card-focused magazine. But it enables me to talk to, to talk to retailers and to talk about retail and talk about you know what's going on for small businesses, which I which I really love. Yeah, and all that content. So I have a monthly me- email that goes out to my retailers, um, yeah. and I've got I don't know almost three thousand now on that list. And you know, in that, I'll like for example, when this podcast goes out, so I'll I'll embed the podcast on my blog and write a little bit about what we talked about and then people can listen to it and then i will send a mailchimp email which is it's email software that you can for those that aren't familiar with it that you can compile a nice looking email and in that email it's got a load of it's got a mixture of content so content and product so it's not super salesy it's like it's not like buy 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 it's it's you know it says hey we do these bottles and we do these coffee cups and these these new card greeting cards but also yeah. it's got all these other useful things for the retailers that's a great thing for us to have in terms of marketing because every time i push the button to send on that it's like pushing a button to get load of orders because people receive it um they remember they read it yeah and they remember us and so like during covid for example like when when it hit in april my email in april i didn't do any selling actually i took all product out of that email and i just focused on everything that i had written for the past five or six years that was useful to a retailer during that period and a lot of it was focused on like how to how can you sell online successfully because um some people find it really daunting and then also i mean now you can like i said you can set up a shopify site super easy easily but actually for some they don't want to do even that but they they could set up you know, I know a Facebook page. I know retailers that just literally have a Facebook page or an Instagram and they're just posting their content. Um, there's a fantastic store, actually, if anyone's interested in following someone who does it really well, um, called The Bottom Drawer and Port It Down. Nice. Uh, and they do really great Instagram um, posts. And they they have a website, but a lot of the time it's like, hey, we've got this, it's got the price in there, and you can just message us if you want to order it. Um, yeah. because you know if someone's it's it's just super easy to buy stuff I online love like that. that yeah i often fall for it yeah <laughs> well I, the funny thing about that account is because I, I i'm speaking to people about it and i was like i'm not even in the market for buying this stuff and i find this account just so in, so fascinating to watch <laughs> yeah. because they just they do it in such a nice way like uh you know they've they they're typically marketing two two categories of of consumer that's kind of mm. a young woman and and a sort of perhaps more middle-aged woman and 
there's different styles and stuff. Sometimes they overlap. They also sell gifts and cards. It's, that's how we know them. So I'm not, I'm not in the market to buy a dress. <laughs> it's just, I don't know, it's something really captivating about the way they do it. And I, I and think you want to support them, yeah, especially yeah. And I, during COVID. Exactly. And so, um, yeah, so I mean, I, I'm not, I just want to be clear, I'm not on the site every day. <laughs> so I'm not, you know, but um, occasionally it'll just, it'll just, be that they're in my feed and I'll see what they're up to and they do really great stories and it's got what what I really like about it is it doesn't feel like they're selling and I think that's so important these days because mm. uh, I was at a business conference because I used to speak at the Sage summits over in America and um and there's a guy there who said everyone no one likes to be sold to but everyone likes to buy and I, that really stuck with me because it's so true and especially with, when you're selling to retailers you know no one wants to feel like they're being sold to they just but they do want to still buy so yeah um it's just about getting that approach right and um you know i think particularly if you're exhibiting at a show and you've not done it before just to stay relaxed and not pounce on people desperate for a, a sale or for every person that comes by no see it more like an open like opening up a conversation exactly the future yeah (laughs) and getting to know each other i think trade shows now like from when i started doing trade shows which you've been doing them longer than me um i think that you know when i first started back at mpw we would not like if you got a bathroom break it would be amazing you know (laughs) sometimes you'd like had to just run (laughs) off as soon as you'd done an order because it was just bam 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 sort of thing it was actually the most exhausting thing the first show i did (laughs) but i don't think it's like that the same way anymore but it's much more about building the relationship now definitely and and i think um you know if you as as we've grown we've had to manage that in careful ways so you know i'm very much aware so i have people helping me understand but i'm very much aware that I, I do take orders um, from customers. Of course I do if someone really wants to order with me. But often I will field, if a customer is um, perhaps a smaller shop, you know, I might field the order to one of my teams so that I can be available if, if a large distributor comes by or some, or a, you know, a multiple comes by. And, um, you know, obviously I want to spend time with everyone if I can. But um, we, we had it, I mean, sometimes we'd have it at, because we did a show called PG Live for a number of years. And um I remember we had a small stand there and it was a greeting card specific show. And because it's only two days, it meant the buyers were all sort of bunched up. And mm. I always laugh about shows because um, it doesn't matter. Even on a two day show, the second, the last day is also <laughs> always the quietest day. <laughs> so, um, yeah. so everyone turns up on the first day, right? So in effect, it's sort of a one day show. It's not because you do get buyers on the second day. But I remember one time I had John Lewis, Paper Chase, and there was someone else, someone else like that all on the stand at the same time, all not being aware of who the other customers were and all expecting me to be able to talk to them at the same time. <laughs> not, not in a kind of, you know, you know, but just like, you know. And so I think it's really important that you're available for those conversations. You're totally right. And actually none of those stores will place, I mean, gone are the days where those guys would come by and, and place a large order on your stand. They, yeah. they, it's very much about nurturing the relationship and it's very much about them, you know, being taken through what what you're up to, what the new cards are so they can log them in their minds and make notes about them and then come uh, for you to send samples after the show. And, you know, and that's, that's so important. And actually I find it a really efficient way of seeing people. Of course, it's great to go and see customers in their shops, but for me to go to London, it's, <clears throat> 
you know, to see someone it's like Toby Chase, it's, yeah, it's going to be it's going to be half a day to almost a full day. I mean, usually I'll tag in a couple of other meetings on the same day. I can do that meeting in twenty minutes or less on the stand, and they can as well. So it's yeah. a huge time saver for all of us. Uh, for, for everyone involved, yeah. yeah. So yeah, I think COVID has really, you know, obviously thrown thrown a spanner in the works for all of us. It was really interesting because. At the start of the year, you know, we weren't sure how Christmas was going to be last year for retailers. And, and it, it, when I was talking to them, they were saying, actually, it wasn't it wasn't too bad. Mm. And uh, we did a lot of good orders um, at Top Draw Spring in January. And, and we had some great orders at, um, at Spring Fair and some good new accounts. And everything we were sort of vaguely aware. I think the, the first two cases were in York on the Thursday before Spring Fair. And then the third case in Brighton was, um, was on the Thursday of Spring, Spring Fair closing. And so they just, and that was, we were aware that something was going on in the world with this virus, but, and, and actually the organizers of Springfield did a great job of getting a lot of hand sanitizer, little pots of hand sanitizer for, um, at, at all the entrances. Mm. And, and little did we know at that time that hand sanitizer was gold. You could have been selling those, those little, uh, bottles for <laughs> 10 quid a pop. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, I think that, you know, and then things started to happen pretty quickly. I mean, even I remember I, I on the 10th of March, I, I had a family trip booked to go and see The Lion King, which I'd never seen before to meet up. My sister lives in Hong Kong and, and I took my son up and my mum came down from York. It's funny because my mum lives in York and I, I live in Brighton and that's where the cases were. Um, but we <laughs> met, we went to this show in, um, in, in London and, um, and at that stage we were kind of like, no, it's, you know, it, it weren't, we weren't super worried, but like a week later, everything was different. And yeah. um, I was actually due to go to Spain um, to to the Fires Festival, um, I think a week or so afterwards. And and then I was like, well, maybe I should cancel this. And and then by that was on like a Wednesday. And by the Sunday, they were turning planes around in the air to Spain. So I was glad yeah. I didn't get caught out there. Yeah. And then and then in terms of how that was affecting us with the business, you know, people were. People were slowing down on the ordering and people that had orders that we hadn't shipped yet or had asked to be shipped around that time were starting to put them on hold. And mm. so the back end of March really, really tailed off. We had some pre-booked white label. Uh, so we do some white label business, um, with some stores in the States and, mm-hmm. um, and that's, that's quite large volume for us. And so those orders, we had four of those on back order <clears throat> and things happened like i said really quickly so those back orders were due to ship in april and may and so we'd already been producing them in march and then when the announcement was made we i immediately furloughed two of the team on the 23rd and then had the rest of the team working out the rest of that week either from home or you know we had a couple of people in the office just mm. tidying things up and then from the start of april the whole team were on furlough Weirdly, on the greeting card side, because we had these back orders with these large accounts, we were able to ship. In fact, April was up for us on the previous oh, wow. year. Yeah. And then March was also good because these back, and at one point, so we shipped two of these back orders. Uh, both large and then the and then the following month we had two more and i went to log into their site to just check everything was okay and they were saying that the warehouses were closed uh, in the states and i was like oh no you know we're not able to, we've got all these cards that we made thousands of yeah. cards that we can't actually land them over there uh, but i sort of also knew that you know if you put them on a boat in six weeks time things could be different so i managed to contact the the customer and 
um, she said, um, she got back to me a couple. Actually, the way it went was I called her and she said, I'll get back. I emailed her and she said, I'll get back to you, but didn't say when. <laughs> I was just, I was like, I, I was going, well, that's, that's not helpful to me because I don't yeah. know if that's going to be in a month or in two days. Yeah. Um, and so I ended up phoning her and she said, I just explained, I said, look, you know, we, we've made all these cards. You know, we can't sell them to anyone else because it has their branding on it. You know, what, what can we do here? And, and, um, she, she was really awesome and got back to me a couple of days later and said we could send them. So they, they got put on the boat and went. And, and actually by the time we got to the end of the first quarter of the first of our new financial year, which is at the end of June, well, the financial year ends in March and that first quarter after it was, only down by 15% on the cards, um, which is fantastic given the circumstances. But we, you know, in terms of our independent stores, they were obviously really bad because they were all closed. Yeah. Um, we also were selling to a couple of supermarkets and those supermarkets were sold out of the cards in the first few weeks of, um, yeah, of course, the because that's where people went. Yeah. And, and so that was the only place people were shopping, right? Um, but yeah. there was a whole thing about like what's essential and what's not essential. And, and to my mind, greeting cards are completely essential, especially in a lockdown, but because <laughs> 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 it's how you can connect with people. Um, uh, supermarkets didn't see it the same way, but, um, that, that quickly turned around. And actually one of the, one of the key issues was, well, there were two issues. One was the brokers warehouses were suddenly closed. So yeah. you could couldn't get your stock to the broker and the brokers weren't in there even to move that stock from there to the stores and the merchandisers weren't able to go in and merchandise either mm. so so the way that works for people who aren't familiar with cards is that you the reason supermarkets use a broker is they don't want 30 or 40 suppliers all filling up the pockets or the spaces and stores for the greeting cards because that means that their shops are going to be full of suppliers all the time. They have one supplier who comes in and looks after the greeting card racks and makes sure that they're fully stocked and everything all the time because, of course, if mm. they're not stocked with cards, you're not going to get any sales from the space. And that is pretty much what's happening. We know this with toilet paper and all sorts of things, don't we, from from the COVID supermarket experience in the early yeah. days. People weren't fighting over cards. I would like to have seen that. It would be good for marketing. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> Um, so, um, so yeah, so the supply chain was, was affected on the, on the other side of us. Normally you'd expect expect to have issues on the other side where like, for example, we had issues at one point with our envelope supplies, not, we couldn't get supply of envelopes from certain people. So yeah, that all happened in the early days of the lockdown where we couldn't actually, even though the stores were, the supermarkets were selling great guns, we Mm. couldn't actually get more of our product in there. And then when they did open up, that got really busy very quickly because there was, you know, the two the two areas where people got busy was that we had about half a dozen really good online retailers who were selling just stacks of cards. Um, and then, you know, supermarket retailers. And it was surprising, you know, I think really looking back, it's a real sign of one of the weaknesses in our industry is that not enough retailers have got an online presence, you know, and actually a lot of them are taking care of that. Now we, we get, yeah. we get emails every week now asking for images and stuff, which of course we are able to supply for people setting up their stores. And, and it's also tricky. Like you, like you said, you know, when you have a gift shop, for example, it's not maybe greeting cards that you put on first, even though they were no. so popular because yeah. It is a low sale. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. It's really, I mean, I think probably the way to do it is if, if you're a shop is to, is to have it as, a, as an add-on, like an upsell yeah. in the basket at the end. Like, or, or to have it available for sale, but have a minimum order value that people have to achieve to get free carriage. Yeah. Lots know, of them so. have done bundles too, which I think right, is great. Right. That's, that's a really good solution as well. So, yeah. so yeah, so the, the, um, when that supply chain came back on, the other thing that happens with brokers is they, they never, so they're under contract to not have those pockets empty in the, in the stores and the supermarkets. Oh, and so, and that's obviously makes sense for everyone because the supermarket doesn't want to lose sales and neither does the broker and neither does, so the brokers typically, neither does the other, do the other publishers. I mean, the brokers typically will have like, say, 70% of the space in store mm-hmm. and they will merchandise their, their products and the other products that, um, that the retailer wants to sell in those stores, but they're not always accountable for for what they're ordering from you if they order it too much. And so, anyone who is listening to this and is a new publisher, uh, I would really strongly advise them not to rush into selling to multiples to start with, because um, it's a really steep learning curve. And mm. we got to a point with so we we actively manage that that's what's going on there. We pay close attention to all the reports coming out from the stores. Um, but it's really easy to get into a situation. So at one point, we were selling literally thousands of these cards per week in, in one of the multiples. And they were ordering more and more. And when we did the calculations, they had, at that point, 16 weeks worth of stock, even even at the busy levels. And mm-hmm. so, so we got in touch with them and, and the supermarket and said, look, you know, you, you've got 16 weeks here. And, and they were still adding, like, orders 5,000 of this and 5,000 of that. And like, look, you know, you by your own records, you're not going to sell these, <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, for another half a year. And, um, and so, yeah, it's, you know, the, the thing is when it's super busy with your business, and this can be when you're first starting out and you're growing fast or when you've got a situation like COVID and there's just basically, it was just me in the office for the first two months. And then I brought back one of my team at the start of June uh, yeah. and she's really experienced with handling, handling the brokers. And, between the two of us, we were kind of like, actually, you know, this is crazy what they're doing. So we got in touch with them and kept them up to speed. And, you know, we still track the numbers to make sure that they're not going to have supply issues. But it would be so easy. You're just getting these orders come through. It would be so easy just to send these orders without thinking and without looking at the detail. And then yeah. the next thing you know, and, the, and I should say the, the reason this is important is because uh, all that business is done on sale or return. So what that means is at some point you're either going to get a load of cards come back to you or those cards are going to get recycled and you're just going to get a big credit note, which is useless to you because, you know, that'll just kill all your margin. So, you know, those are some of the, some of the issues that came up for us. Other, other issues were, yeah, just on the other side of the supply chain. We have pretty good stocks like, um, products so the other issue for us was not spending too much money so we held we started to whistle down so say our stock holding was a hundred thousand we focused on getting that down to like 60 or fifty thousand to free up the cash flow and mm. and we only made stuff that was being ordered um, and fortunately for us having these larger accounts meant that we could reprint because typically when we print on the on the printing press it's you know you're printing a thousand of of each design yeah you have six up on a sheet so that's 12 uh sorry six thousand cards minimum but of course the the nuisance comes when you've got one product that you're out of but you don't necessarily need to order five thousand <laughs> five other products times a thousand and um but fortunately we have we have good supplies and we've been able to manage that fairly well um we, we can't digitally print with a lot of our products because they've got special finishes on them like foiling or embossing and mm. so you really need to have that minimum uh, of a thousand um being ordered at a time so yeah i i guess i mean i 
so for years, I've run my business on a two and a half day week. Back in 2004, I did a personal development development exercise with a friend, uh, a friend of mine's father, um, which I've written about on my blog. It's called Looking Back from Perfect. And we we were working crazy, crazy hours. And um, we knew, we didn't actually even know why we wanted to do it. We just got ourselves in the situation where the business was growing super fast. We were working mm. very long hours. We weren't really enjoying it. And, um, and we wanted some of our life back. And he, we did this exercise where, uh, we set a goal for ourselves of um, maintaining the same level of income but reducing our working week to 50%, so two and a half days per week. Yeah. Um, and we did that and uh, we did it over a course of a year. And by the time we got to the end of the year, we were earning double and we just cut our working week to half. So, and, I love and, that. Yeah, it was amazing. And, and so I'd lived like that for a very long time. <laughs> and then when COVID <laughs> came along, it was a bit of a shock. Because the, you had to shock. be the only one. <laughs> There's people out there really, what does he mean he's waiting to turn off days of the That's just, <laughs> it's ridiculous. Because, you know, there's this whole ethos, isn't there, particularly on the internet now with business, anything you listen to related to business, it's like you've got to work, put in like 70-hour weeks as standard, which I don't really, I'm not, I don't subscribe to that school of thought. I think actually you're, you're better as a business if you can reduce the, the importance of yourself within the business, um, you know, if you can delegate and, and make yeah. yourself you know, reduce your importance. Uh, you know, often, often we feel like we can't do this in our business because we're, it's like maybe tied to our ego. We're, we're important, you know, we, yeah, and I had that myself. Business, rise and fall with you. <laughs> yeah. And so I had that myself. I was like, well, uh, you know, it, it, I think it goes deeply into like, well, am I even loved, you know, in the world? If you're, if you're not important to your business, you know, it's, um, <laughs> you know, uh, no one loves me. <laughs> so, um, so I got got over that really early, but you know, come COVID, like you know, it, it, it needed me to go back in full time and and more than full time. I was working seventy hours a week. Um, yeah, as, and um, you know, that's just sometimes there are periods in your life and and in business where you have to knuckle down and get on with it. And and um, speaking to other business owners, um, I was chatting with my distributor from Ireland yesterday, and and he was saying. Um, it was a similar thing for him. He's got a big part of his businesses on Amazon now. And, um, and he said, you know, when the lockdown happened, Amazon just went through the roof, mm. uh, for them. They had an in- initial instance and a similar sort of thing as I was talking about with the warehouses, with the brokers where Amazon warehouses were affected. But once they got through that, well, actually they had their own warehouse and they worked out because it's him and his wife uh, and he grabbed his teenage kids and they were all in picking, picking and packing every day. <laughs> for those yeah. first three months so you know sometimes it's like that and he said it it was the same for me i went back to the start of when i first set up the well when john i first set up the business it's like you know we we're just doing everything from packing boxes through to making cards and um yeah. all the rest of it and i'm doing the books i've been doing the bookkeeping again recently so <laughs> um i remember just setting that all up so i set sage up on our business and then i had a bookkeeper the next year and um you know, I don't mind doing it. I can do it, but it's you know just a different. But thing. it takes time, doesn't it? Everything it takes time, takes time. And, and learning things like really silly things, like you know, uh, like Hallmark had specific labor requirements, and UKG had specific labor requirements for shipping to the brokers, and and they involved using something as simple as Microsoft Word, um, you know, and just making mistakes. And fortunately, our team we have a system of operations manuals that I set up. I read this book by a guy called Michael Gerber called Emeth um, Entrepreneur. Mm. I don't know if you're familiar yeah. with it, but it's a really great book. He talks about working on your business rather than in your business. Yeah. And a big part of that is having these things called operations manuals, which 
in effect are sort of how-to guides for so so anyone can pick up any job in the business um yeah and and so having those was super super valuable because we even have screenshots and stuff in them to show like how I to do things that. yeah and so so it meant and also things like whatsapp because you you were able to furlough people and still ask questions but you just couldn't have them work yeah. Um, you know, you couldn't have them send emails and stuff like that. So I was able to make a few phone calls from time to time and just when I got really I stuck. I make but, this carton you know, label. <laughs> just, oh, God, the freaking label, I tell you. <laughs> it's like you wouldn't – and it's just it's, – it's something as stupid as a label. I remember just sitting yeah. there going, oh, my my life is too short. <laughs> it's not – I you know. know. you do it, right? And so you got to do it. And and it's – you would have thought it would be something – I mean, my I had an issue with my – um. So we have a server in our in our office. It's just a an, a simple NAS drive, but it has. I mean, it looks when you look at this kit. We moved into this fantastic building that we bought about five years ago, and and it had all this kit installed, this whole Ethernet network. And in the past, I would have looked at like something like that and just gone, "No, oh, no, thank you." But yesterday, I was kind of like, I figured out what the issue was, and I bought a new switch to replace it and stuff. But so that kind of thing, it's like. It's funny when you're in a business, isn't it? Because there's things that you come up against um, mm. that are incredibly complicated looking and you just breeze through them. And then other things that should be super simple, like a label. Just <laughs> I mean, it would be so amazing if there was a standard for shipping label, like yes. cotton labels. Yeah, I'm sure someday... Well, ultimately, I don't think we'll need that. We'll just have a simple barcode. Yeah, and it'll that's be, true. The, the blockchain will – I mean, we won't even, won't even be invoicing each other anymore. It'll all just go into some kind of software that says this barcode arrived at your place and you've confirmed what was what was yeah. expected. And it was in the order and the bill is this and it's arrived already in your accounts and you've said that you're going to pay it in 30 days or 60 days or whatever. You, yeah. You know. And um, that that's – uh, that change is coming for me not fast enough I, I find it crazy that we're still you know scanning receipts from our credit cards when we go to shows you know really all of that data should just go straight from the bank into your software um you know and say this is what you bought and this is the VAT on it and you know and we're one day it, you know but it, I, I think it's I think it's coming soon and I think you can see it already with the AI working on our phones. You know, I get in my car now and my, my phone will tell me that it's 25 minutes to ho- to get home and, and actually the route that I normally take is blocked, so you should take a different route. You know, it does yeah. that. I, don't, I, I didn't even set it to do that, does it? So, you know, I think I think it will arrive soon. So Yeah. You know. How do you feel about retail this autumn? Because obviously things are a bit strange. Yeah, I mean, it's it's um I've, I have mixed views about... um awesome fair not being on i i I do really well at that show particularly on the gift side um so i was sad to see it not on and on the other side i was like really grateful that it wasn't on because uh, you know i was concerned for my retailers for my team for myself um and uh you know i think given how much pain we've gone through to to keep this thing at bay you know it's yeah, it doesn't make sense to make it easier for it to come back. So mm. and we want to get through this as quickly as you can, which means, you know, doing all the things that we're doing at the moment. I guess the big fear for most people that I'm speaking to is the second wave coming through and how that will affect retail. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel strangely confident about Christmas. I don't think it'll be uh, what it was last year, but I also don't think it'll be as terrible as people might be fearing. Uh, I think that one of the one of the positive things that's come out of COVID-19 is we've all been socially distanced physically, but uh, emotionally we've got a lot closer to one another. So mm-hmm. I don't know if you've had this experience, but 
but even as busy as I've been, I've had more conversations on the phones with family and friends. I've been uh, messaging, Skyping, Zooming, uh, you know, all these fantastic tools and, um, and people have been buying and sending, this is what I'm hearing anecdotally, sending more cards and letters yeah. to one another. And they're just making time for, for each other. And so I think the upshot of that combined with things like, you know, people being more conscious about their consumerism and what they're buying means that um, people will want to send each other gifts. I think they'll be wanting to send each other gifts that are long-lasting or are going to get consumed and enjoyed straight away. So I think food gifts are still still popular and still yeah. will be. Um, but, you know, gifts like a reusable cup or bottles or reusable bags, um, things that are going to mean that they can, you know, get more than five minutes use of. Yes. Um, I think those products will do well. I think my gut feeling is that retailers are going to be ordering fairly last minute. They're going to be just in time because they're going to want to wait and see in the same sort of way that we've been you know, waiting to see what's going on. And we've been only ordering what we need to. But I'm definitely seeing an uptake each month in volumes of gifts and cards now. So the the, the low points, are, we're coming out of the low points. And yeah. so I, I expect really people will want to buy and send each other things. So that's going to happen on, in, you know, September, October into November for retailers stocking up on those products. And I think also retailers who, who haven't set up online, you know, they've probably got another month or two before they can get that all going and that is achievable with with software like yeah. shopify but um uh especially if they keep it simple or, or even just setting up a social account and just just posting photos of what they've got um, yeah you know and and just engaging with um people that come into their store so i think i think people, consumers will still buy stuff for christmas of course you've got to remember as well a lot of the things that people were spending money on this year they haven't been able to spend money on so they, there is probably cash there um, yeah. The big question is whether the jobs will still be there. But I suspect once we start seeing people spend money for Christmas, uh, a lot of the jobs will start getting supported again and, and the whole supply chain will be able to bring back more and more people at the end of furlough. And I suspect when the furlough ends as well, that'll have a knock-on effect because either people will have to get made redundant or they, they will be working again. And yeah. when everyone's working again, people will, for example, be buying more sandwiches at local delis or whatever and um, going into gift shops and whatnot the, the big issues are in the cities really i guess um you know our, one of our long-standing customers cards galore was on the bbc the other day um just saying you know how, how dead it is in london and most of their stores are are in the city center and and so all those workers who normally would be in the city are working from home mm. uh, so they're not going out to buy sandwiches and they're not popping into store to pick up a card into his stores to pick up cards so i think um really ideally we need to see all that gets sorted. But speaking to, I had a chat with my bank manager yesterday, and he he said that um that he's the bank's not having staff go back till the end of the year. So I'm guessing oh, wow. that they're not the only ones thinking that. Yeah. So I don't know what that's going to mean for for cities, but I city centre stores. But I guess it's going to be similar, and it's going to be a challenging time for them. So and and they're in a difficult position because they have high overheads, and they are not necessarily going to be able to cut costs in those areas. So. Yeah. The business rates is a big issue for, for those retailers and um, and similarly with the rents, you know. And ironically, the rents often are coming from pension funds, which we all have, you know, a, a stake in. Um, yeah. So, you know, I don't even know if we can actually talk to pension funds to – you can't really do it, can you? You can't say, oh, can you help these guys out because we want to support retailers because mm. the, the pension fund's job is to is to um, to grow its, you know, to grow its capital and 
Um, yeah, it's so, very tricky. Yeah, so I think I think it's not all doom and gloom. I think for sure regional stores will do really well. I'm speaking to my retailers who, um, like for example, have a post office connected to them, or you know, a lot of them have actually been able to tra- trade through the period if they're a local village store. Yeah, uh, and so those guys will definitely do well. And I think any of those stores out there who don't stock. Um, great gift items they should probably look at their offering and make sure they've got um, products because my guess is that um, you know there'll be people ordering online there'll be people buying stuff from supermarkets and there'll be people buying stuff from local stores like that you know and then um, obviously if there is a local gift store in the in the town or whatever then you know that they'll also do well I think so yeah and I think uh, it's just about sort of staying in touch with the retailers in a sensitive way I mean we're we're even chasing money in very sensitive ways because yeah. we, of course, need to get paid. But um, at the same time, we have to recognize that the retailers are, have been going through a challenging period. I have to say that most of our customers have been pretty awesome with paying their bills. Uh, we have a few stragglers, but you know, we're in conversation with them. And, and when we do talk to them, we can usually work out a plan. And you know, if you are a retailer that's having difficulty at the moment, I really recommend you actually just speak to your suppliers yeah. um, you know, and just at least even if you can send installments of 50 or 100 pounds to whittle down the, the debt that you have, it's worth doing just to maintain that relationship. And, yeah. you know, they, they will be supportive where they can do. And we've done that where we can. And, and um, you know, people have been really appreciative of that. So I think those are some of the things to pay attention to this autumn. And then in terms of selling, again, also be sensitive to the situation that, um, you know, we're all going to be competing with emails going out. So I guess um that'll get more challenging for all of us to be able to grab people's attention with the subject header and all the rest of it. Absolutely. But I've spoken to lots of independent retailers and they're still not getting enough like new products sent to them. Interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I I think. um, I'm a bit worried, I think, to bother them. Yeah. I think, you know, often when I speak to new publishers, for example, they're a bit shy about you know, calling people up and this kind yeah. of thing. And, and I think the ones that I know that have done great jobs, you know, they're doing really simple things like, um, in fact, Gavin at Little Dog, who's a friend of mine, he um, he sent a, a chocolate bar with a Kit Kat with, um, with his brochure. And um, he didn't even send samples. He was just like, it's nothing like having a break with a kick hat and a, and a nice yeah. new brochure and it's just a simple nice thing and, yeah. and you know had a really good response from that we we did a thing with chocolate one year at the shows which was really fun we i went to i saw um a speaker whose name will come to me in a moment but he um he uh jeff ram that's right he was at the gift for association uh, members day one year and um and he talked about this wedding photographer who had a wedding show coming up and he got the list of all the, the couples that were coming and he called them and said what's your favorite chocolate and so they told him and and um or some of them told him and he made, made a note he said well come to my booth at the show and i'll have a surprise for you and when they arrived he had their favorite chocolate and his um little album of wedding photographs that he did and, and his prices and stuff and I, I i was in this uh at this event and there was about 100 people in the room and i looked around and i thought i wonder how many people will do this idea and then it came to me that actually i thought no one would do this idea because it's yeah. one of those things you go through these <laughs> Goes these events, you go, oh, that's that's a really good idea, and then no one does it, and yeah. so I did it, and, and it was so much fun, and retailers really loved it. And there's something super personal about chocolate. Because, I love that. You know, it's like, what's your favorite chocolate? Often it's connected to a, a nice childhood memory, yeah. or you know, just some some nice time, and so it's it's personal without feeling too personal. You know what I yeah. mean? It's like, and so. Um, so yeah, it's, I did it and, and we had a, re, a great uplift in sales for the two shows we did it. But trouble with these ideas is you need to keep generating new ones because <laughs> otherwise yeah. it becomes tired and it's like, 
in fact, and it became tired very quickly. The second show, not as many people came to get their chocolate, so, <laughs> which you know I didn't complain about because I, I happen to like chocolate. <laughs> but I'm too stoned there. <laughs> well, I think it's good to try new things. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. So. Uh, so as an industry, so lately we've been talking a lot more about diversity and inclusion, but I think that the home and gift industry in general is quite traditional, quite, it's not very diverse. And I know that the, uh, the, I saw something on PG bus. The Greeting Cards Association issued a statement about it. Do, have, have you heard much talk about it because you're so involved in the industry? Yeah. I mean, it is, you know, Clearly, gosh, I could talk, we could do a whole separate podcast on this, but I'll try and keep it succinct. I think um, for sure, I think at company level, there's, and this is what we're working on at the Greeting Card Association, because I'm on the National Council for the Greeting Card Association yeah. and I'm Deputy Chair of the, of the Gifter Association. I just stepped down from being chairman about a month ago. Uh, actually, the GA does great job with diversity within its staff. It's we've got a very diverse mix of people, and and we've got a woman who's running it. And um, you know, and I, I, you know, you see in the you see when you read on this stuff, for example, even even just with the sexes, there's you know, we need more women at senior level on yeah. boards, you know, in businesses for sure. And we definitely also need diversity as well that's representative. And, and the reason that is is because it's so easy to look at the world from just one perspective. If mm-hmm. and if you're all white men, you know, you're going to have a white male perspective. Um, <laughs> and, 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 and there's going to be things in, in that that you're not even aware that you're, you have as a perspective and things that you dismiss that you, that for other people, they would not dismiss. And they, yeah. and, and so, so I grew up in South Africa and I'm very much aware of, of um, race relations and, and all these issues. And, and, um, and I left, I left there when I was 12. And so I was very kind of conscious of a lot of this stuff and it's really obviously come to the fore through the black lives matter uh, campaign um in the last year or so but it's been an issue that's been going on for a long time yeah. um i think one of the things that's been most interesting about the gca so so the argument from the people who so initially there were two or three publishers who were of ethnic origin that kind of um had written and complaining that there wasn't enough diversity in the card racks in stores mm. and so on one level that's obviously important to take note of and for sure for sure it's something that we want to try and prove but it's not a simple fix so you can't just stick a load of cards with different colored faces into stores because that in one area that might be relevant and in another area of the country it may not be relevant Mm -hmm. and so it's not necessarily always possible to make a blanket decision like that and also with greeting cards some greeting cards don't actually have any hint towards ethnicity uh, at all, like whether you're white or I black think or whatever. A big trend so, is not having any people on them, but right, having, right, because uh, you want as many wording. people to buy them as possible. And and yeah. so from the retailer's perspective, also they don't if they put a, a a card in the store that's got an Indian face in it, for example, that limits that card sell to someone who knows someone who's Asian or knows or is of that ethnic group. So much better to put a card on that just says happy birthday <laughs> yeah absolutely <laughs> but if like you have white faces on the card sure, of course and so there's there's where the issue starts right yeah so and that issue is important and for sure i think there are i mean i have a very di- diverse group of friends so in terms of from different countries different ethnic backgrounds and different uh, religions as well and so you know, I think when you're out shopping, you do want that available. Although I think really the internet is where you want to go for 
this niche, all of the niche stuff. So whether that's getting a 45th birthday card instead of a 40th or 50th, because you could say the same about milestone birthday cards. We only do like uh, yeah. 18, 21, 30, 40, 50, but someone might be turning 46 and you might want that. And so what's fantastic about the internet is you can find anything now. And I would encourage, and we, this is what we were talking about um, at the at the shows is, if brands can build themselves up as being like the go-to place to get, say, uh, Afro-Caribbean cards, you know, then, and they have a following, then they can go back to stores and say, we have a following and they know their data as well. So they can say, we have a following and actually we sell a huge amount of cards in these geographical spaces in the UK. Let's go talk to one of the big players, like one of the supermarkets or whatever, and say, look, we've got this following. We want to do a campaign with you guys in your territories. Mm. And what we're going to do is we're going to put, we'd like to put the cards into store and then online, you know, we're going to say to all our followers, because we've got 10,000 followers, look, you can now buy our cards in Waitrose in these towns uh, or wherever. And that, to my mind, is a more powerful way of getting in the growth because the trouble is people have tried over the years to bring in different um, I, I know this because I've been in the industry 20 years and I've seen uh, companies come and go. And also a good friend of mine, Raj, he runs a company called Devora and he's very experienced in selling these particular products. And mm. so, you know, he has taught, he, he will talk at length about it. So probably a good person to get on your podcast actually to talk about this subject oh, in more detail. Yeah. And so, but actually that aside, one, one issue is like having cards with, different colored faces on them, for example. And the other issue is a more systemic issue, which is having people in our businesses that are from more diverse backgrounds. Mm -hmm. And so there is the real issue for my mind, because often you're talking about subconscious biases that are going on for people who are hiring that don't even realize that, for example, when they're advertising for a job for someone to arrive to a company, are they advertising in in a place where someone, you know, of Asian origin or you know, Africa being an origin or whatever it is, um, or even a different religion might apply. Um, you know, if you go into a lot of um, greeting card publishers, for example, and you look at their design teams, they tend to be young white females. Yeah. Um, you know, why aren't there different colors and religions in these groups? And so, you know, is it because the jobs aren't being advertised in the right places? Or is it because, yeah, it's prob- probably more to do with I think it goes quite that. deep there because yeah. um, art degrees in this country are not very you know the the students are not that diverse always well i i have an indian friend of mine and he's like he said um he's a failure in the eyes of his parents because <laughs> there's only three options when you're when <laughs> yeah, because... your career it's a lawyer doctor or failure <laughs> 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 you might add accountant in there i guess but you know what i mean and so I, yeah, yeah. But sure, I think I mean, it's a systematic I, I, issue, you know, with our diversifying our workforces, whether that is religion, um, skin color, or or um, sexual preferences, yes, uh, is a much more lengthy thing. But I think for an independent gift shop, for example, if you sell greeting cards with white faces on it, it is quite. It's at least one step in the right direction to maybe look at your like customers and if there is diversity there well you know whatever that that means in your area you look at catering to them more yeah i think so and i think at least there could be something couldn't there and and i think you you know that that is important and it it is about sending signals out to the world and and you know perhaps there is an argument even like for saying well 
you know, we're not going to do a full range of these and they may sell or they may not sell, but we're going to show that we were actively engaged with this yeah, like area. Stones, think, for example, know, they've taken on uh, AfroTouch greeting cards after yes, that Beauty Bus uh, article. Yeah, I mean, it would be really interesting. I know John Proctor runs that business. I know him very well. I've, I used to sell to him almost 20 years ago. And, and um, you know, I love how proactive those guys are. And and actually, if there is anyone who's got a diverse customer base, it could well be them. You know, the, the I guess the proof will be in the pudding with that and, and time will tell. I, I think I think it's super important to have different groups engaging with product. I, I have yeah. um, a shop in Brighton called Crease Cards um, run by a really lovely guy called Paul. And he has a lot of gay cards in his um, store and he has a lot of rude ones <laughs> um, at the back, a section at the back and he you know he has regular custom from that and so you know there are for sure there's cards that are going to cater to different groups it's about the access and and to my mind um yes you can put them in stores but the danger is you put them in and they don't sell and then people go oh that doesn't work you know and so really the the better way to go in i think is via the internet so you can actually you can actually be sending customers because it's so powerful now having you know, having a strong Instagram account, you know, or a strong, strong social media presence. And you're saying, yeah, we've opened these stores and these are the stores. And then there'll be some, there's already a hashtags. I can't remember the specific hashtag, but there's someone's got a, a hashtag. I think it's for black cards and they, um, you know, that that's a huge following. And so anytime a store that sells those products is posting on their social, they can put that hashtag and then that will drive business towards their stores. So I think there's a the whole bigger picture. But to my mind, I think it's super important to be open to diversifying your workforce. You know, that's it starts there, I think. And these are, these are more systemic issues. Like it's kind of like making it more attractive and to different groups mm. to to apply for these jobs and to to actually have them and then you know and then also another really important thing is to is to just actually get get different people involved in the organization so we're talking about that at the greeting card association we, we just did a video recently uh, about sending cards and and actually the the call went out to everyone who was a member of the association but actually what got missed is you know, there's a lot of white, there's men and women in there and, and different sexualities, but, uh, you know, got missed um, that there wasn't enough people of color in, in the video. And actually, you know, in South Africa, when they made the change, they started doing reverse discrimination to actually address because it was such a such a huge imbalance, you know, with white owned businesses, for example, they started doing these black empowerment um, partnerships where just to get more people involved um, more people of color involved with businesses and get more people on boards and what have you. And, and you know, there's a lot of kind of, um, it's a contentious issue for some people because, you know, the argument when you when I speak to people is like, look, you need to do this. But people are like, well, you, the, people have to become board members on, you know, how, how good they are. And, and of course, that's important. Uh, and also, you still have to get <laughs> visual... Uh, mix in there you know what i mean yeah. and, and so it's the same with the video so you know that video should really have had we sh- we should have made a more active and had you had more of a diverse right um, in the in the video board members been. or people in the organization maybe someone would have picked it up exactly. or if it exactly. was encouraged in the company culture to point it out if you felt like that you know to voice it for example i don't know i think that it's only good when we 
can have that kind of open discussions in our business places. Um, yeah, I think it's it's interesting. I was speaking to a publisher friend of mine. He runs a big publishing business in the UK, very successful. And so he has over 100 staff and, and he talked to people of color in his in his uh in his staff and and they had never been isolated in that way or just made distinct in that way and they said they don't want to put get the wrong words here but they it's not that they were uncomfortable but they just it was like they'd never thought of themselves as of color in his organization yeah (laughs) so there's something about that as well and it's kind of it's a weird thing isn't it like once you start talking about it clearly there are issues there are things there for people. People do feel affected by this and people mm-hmm. are affected by that, no doubt. And also, you know, some organizations have actually already made these moves and to the point where actually, you know, people aren't considered gay or black or, or whatever. They're, they're just, you know, they're just part of the team. And, um, you know, so I think it's, it's one of, it comes back to that positive discrimination thing again. You, you kind of, you, you need to, you need to show signs that this is okay and it's acceptable and you need to keep doing that constantly. I think, um, you know, it's, there, there is a school of thought. I, I heard the psychologist once talk about, um, this is more, um, about misogyny. He was, he said, if you, um, if there's a, a misogynist in, in a group of men and they, there's a joke about women and they all laughed, it's like a seal of approval on his misogyny. And, you know, that misogyny can turn into something more violent and ultimately lead to, you know, something that's going to hurt someone, you know, and all of that kind of starts with an acceptance by the group of, you know, the, um, the putting down of women or the, the, the laughing at women, if yeah. you like, in that way. And I think the same applies when you're talking about race. So, you know, racist jokes are out <laughs> completely, yeah. never, sh- never should be in, they frankly. They should have never been uh, in in the first right, place. Right, exactly. And, and um, you know, these so often people in the world use race or sex or different things to to put them aside from one group and put themselves into another group. And I think if you find yourself in a situation where that's being done, you know, you have to stand up and say something. And and if you find racism appearing in front of you or sexism or any of these things or, or homophobia in front of you, you've got to stand up and talk about them. Especially and so, if you're not, you know, if you're the spectator or, you know, not. Even if you're there in thing. presence, like you're not, even if you're not part, you're part of the conversation if you're in the space where that's yeah, conversation. Yeah. But you just need to stand up for the person next to you because the person they, that is being targeted might not be able to, I think. Exactly, exactly. And so, so I guess really what we're talking about here right now is is all of that. And so it's about having that set up. And I, I think the easy wins for any retailers listening, I mean, if you've got a diverse ethnic mix in your in, in the neighborhood that you're selling or the uh, geographic location, then have those in have those cards there. And even if you don't have some, so you have the option for someone because now mm. we're so cosmopolitan. I mean, you know, yeah. uh, that we have friends, like I said, I mean, it's, I mean, yeah. I live in a village yeah. with 2,300 people. It's very, it's not very diverse, but mm. obviously I have a diverse group of friends. I would buy, you know, if I, if it was accessible, like, you know, when you go to your local gift yeah. shop, I would love to mm. see cards that were more diverse or other things too. I mean, you know, dolls or crayons yes. or, you yes. know, whatever it might be, but, uh, and not just, skin color but also sexuality and religion but definitely you know that even if i live in a very traditional like i guess what you would call a white village yeah i mean you know the world is changing and you know our our 
children are doing that. I've got a 13-year-old son and he's he is hot all over this transgender debate and and the subject and the use of language around these issues and and so, you know, I think I think we're we're definitely part of a shift in consciousness going on right now and and um all of these marches and and campaigns and things are part of that and and you know the way in the same way that we're part of the shift in consciousness on how we treat the planet you know mm-hmm. and and the way you can get involved with that as a retailer or as a publisher um you know is to is to publish cards that kind of or, or to, and to sell products that are part of the story you know it, or, you know it's just really important to get engaged with it and um you know and to show where you stand yeah absolutely well i've been taking up loads of your time thank you so much for coming on the show and talking spending so long talking you're welcome I'm, i am a chatterbox so i do apologize <laughs> if it's been long for people but um, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you too oh, thank you so much and if people want to find you so they can go to blue eyes sun if they have a shop and then if they are a retail cu- like a, a want to buy a mug or something they go to green, green magpie? magpie yeah greenmagpie.net it is and it's blue eyed sun sun uh, dot uk com uh yeah and um yeah if you're a retailer check out my blog it's i'm sure you'll find something useful on there perfect and i'll link that in the show notes as well thank you so much and thank you for having me on the show thank you so much thank you so much jeremy and thank you so much to all of you who are listening and for sticking with us throughout this lengthy episode i really hope that you enjoy tuning in i will be back a little bit later with another episode and until then i hope you have a fantastic week thank you so much for listening